Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me, if you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, guides, adventures, video previews, Discord stuff, all kinds of great things. So if if you want to help support shows like this and get access to all that, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link to join is in the show notes below. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about. So uh, first up, again, I, I tend not to focus on kind of the industry news as much because I'm here for DMs, right? I am a DM that's here for other DMs to talk about how to run our games and the things that help us run our games. That's my focus, not not really the business side of things. But this comes up a lot in D&D circles, and so I think it's I think it's an interesting point. So Wizards of the Coast, so an interesting, I don't I don't have all the details. And if, and if you want to dive deep into all these details, I highly recommend the show Mastering Dungeons by my friends Sean Merwin and Teo Sabadia. They do a great job of talking about industry news. They've covered it for a long time. They've been paying attention to it for a long time. So they, they have a lot of details. And I'm going to be washing over some details. But I do know that the former head of Hasbro, unfortunately, passed away in this past year. And what that meant was that the current president of Wizards of the Coast, a fellow named Chris Cox, got promoted to become the head of Hasbro. And that left a vacancy for Wizards of the Coast, and they have now filled uh, that vacancy with, her name is Cynthia, Cynthia Williams. Hey, look, ads. Cynthia Williams comes from Microsoft. She was the general manager and vice president of the gaming ecosystem commercial team at Microsoft. Most notably drove the expansion of Xbox gaming and the acceleration of uh, game creator growth. That's very interesting. She also spent more than a decade at Amazon, right? So that's that's very interesting. And of course, it fires us. It fires up all of our imaginations with all kinds of predictable futures about about the way things the way things go and the way things will go. We can all kind of imagine different things. We know that Wizards of the Coast and certainly Dungeons and Dragons has had and Wizards of the Coast brand over Dungeons and Dragons has been thinking a lot more about digital tools. They did a big poll on it a while back. They did. They have been hiring a lot of people. So it's certainly not a surprise to think that they are leaning more towards a electronic route and thus brought in a new president who has, and what's interesting, president of Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming. So she's actually over a couple of different things, which is kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting setup. My only point in bringing this up is to me, it shows the general unpredictability of what happens with, I don't want to say with the game, but with Wizards part of the game, there was a lot of talk about when they're going to have a new version of D&D. We now no longer have to worry about that conversation because we know that there's going to be some kind of new D&D-ish thing coming out in a couple of years, probably. But now you have a new president, right? Will that change things? Probably not, but it might, right? It's not, it's not a zero, you know, that's, the probability isn't zero. And there's a lot of outstanding questions that come up. And when I think about this, a lot of outstanding questions that like myself and, and friends of mine who, are, who think all the time about this hobby have, which is like, what's the future of the DMs Guild, right? What is the future? Are, are they going to license, are they going to continue to license 5e or future material with third-party digital products, right? I'm going to say Roll20 and D2 Beyond, but it also includes other groups. Fantasy Grounds, we'll put Fantasy Grounds in there. Are they going to 
bring all of their digital holdings in-house, which is kind of the same question, right? So there's lots of different potential paths. Oh, will they support the OGL? I'm going to call 5.5, right? Will 5.5 have an OGL, an open gaming license? That is important to third-party publishers like Cobalt Press and stuff like that. Do they need one is a different question. So then another question is, will, how backward compatible will 5.5 be? I'll add Foundry so I don't make anybody angry over here. Can you get the full like monster manual in Foundry? So these, these are outstanding questions. And my argument is we could sit and spend all day coming up with logical reasons why they will or why they won't do this stuff. And the reality is a very small number of people are going to end up having that, making that choice. It, it showed to me that having a new president of Wizards of the Coast at this moment kind of shows the general unpredictability of this hobby overall. There is another aspect, though, which is how, you know, if we think about all of the different states of these things, like, do they shut the guild down? Do they keep the guild going? Do they double down on the guild and make it even bigger? Right. That's a question. Do they license material to third parties? Do they just stop new stuff? Do they pull everything or do they continue to support it? Totally, right? There's different states of all of these things. I think those are all generally unpredictable. I don't think we could, we could all, I mean, we, we could all predict them. Human beings are wonderful at making predictions. We're great at it. We just suck at results, right? And enough of us can come up with enough variants of these that somebody will be right. You know, that's the problem with predictability is that sometimes somebody's right and then we think they're Nostradamus and no, they were just lucky, right? It's really easy to mis, mis, misconstrue luck for, for, you know, clear things. The evil John is right. It is absolutely fun to speculate, right? I, I, I kind of try not to speculate too much, right? I don't like, you know, you're not going to hear me come up with my guess because, you know, A, I would rather think about like, how do I, how do I maintain a, how do I maintain my, my place in this hobby? How do I make sure that DMs are still running great games, regardless of any of the answers to any of these situations, right? And that's, you know, how do I build a robust, situation around me both for myself and my games and my friends that are playing the games and then for for everybody that i'm able to support with what i do how can i make sure that we are still in a robust you know we, we are still able to kind of build a robust enterprise around ourselves so that regardless of the answers to any of these questions the hobby is still strong for us right so that to me is the more interesting question hey my mom is here hi mom everybody say hello to my mom so yeah so i think like you can predict it all day long doesn't mean we're going to be right. And it means if we're right, it doesn't mean we are right for any good reason, right? Because I was talking to somebody and, and they were saying like, well, it's quite possible that Chris Cox was a good president for Wizards of the Coast during the growth of D&D, but may not have been a good president for the growth for for at, for for D&D at this point. And I was like, that had nothing to do with it. A guy died, right? And he got promoted. So those are not circumstances that are based on business decisions, right? Those are circumstances based on life and life is chaos. So, you know, yeah. Anyway, so I thought that that was kind of interesting, interesting topic. But most most of my point is there's lots of different features, lots of different futures that could come up. And I think it's very hard to predict those with any amount of accuracy. So instead, let's focus on how we build things. The Lazy Dungeon Master's Companion is now for sale on DriveThruRPG. The PDF is available for sale on DriveThruRPG. It is for sale on DriveThruRPG. Thanks to so many people who came to call when I asked for people to give reviews who have seen it, particularly the backers of the Kickstarter. It has 129 five-star ratings. You guys are the best. And has reached gold. It's a gold bestseller. It is number two uh, behind a Korean Call of Cthulhu thing, which is interesting. It's actually, if you go to the preview of the new redesign of Drive-Thru RPG, it's number one. 
So I'm going to say it's number one, you know, but it's not number one unless you go to the, the legacy. If, you, if you're on the legacy site, it's number two. But whatever. I'm really happy. It's on the front page. That, that, is, that is really great. Getting, being able to get into the best-selling banner means a lot. And that I'm so I'm I'm very happy. I'm very I'm very humbled by all of the support. And I'm so glad that people are enjoying the book as much as they have. Which means that if you did not back the Kickstarter, if you back the Kickstarter, make sure to check your backer kit, go download the PDF. You 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 are owed a copy. If you did not back it, if you have not had a chance to get it and you want a digital version for 10 bucks, you can get the digital version right on DriveThruRPG, which includes the PDF and all the all the art and everything like that. So very exciting. I'm very, very happy. That was a big, that was a big thing that happened this week. So let's talk about our product spotlight. This is a, this is a special product spotlight. I, I always think it's important that, you know, not, not every, this is going to be like the longest joke in history, right? But not every publisher can get the visibility that it really needs. So I think sometimes it's important for a, a show like mine to, to put a spotlight on a product that might be missed for a small group of creators that might not really have be getting all of the attention that they deserve. I kid, of course. The Darrington Press, the publishing part of Critical Role, the larger yeah, rimshot thing, the largest I mean, I don't know. They're, they're huge, right? They have an Amazon cartoon for crying out loud. There hasn't been a D&D cartoon in like 30 years. And now there's a new D&D cartoon and it's third party and it's made by Critical Role, right? It's about Critical Role. So it is huge. And I, and I normally don't bother to, you know, put these as spotlights because like they don't need my help. Right. I like to put spotlights on things where it's like people make, oh, I haven't heard of that. But in this one, like I was so blown away when I bought it. I said, I definitely I really want to do a spotlight on this. So years ago, Matt Mercer got together with Green Ronin and put together a Tal Darai source book along with James, James Hake, Joey Hake and, and others, I think, as well. And they have gone back. They have taken the brand back underneath their own imprint, Darrington Press, and come out with Taldari Reborn, written by Matt Mercer, Hannah Rose, and James Hake. And it is, so I originally was like, nah, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I've, I've got Wild Mount, but I don't really, I don't really read it. I like Critical Role a lot. Don't, you know, do not misunderstand anything that I'm saying. Critical Role is awesome. And it's crazy how much of an impact Critical Role has had on D&D. It, it cannot be understated, I don't think. It has had a huge role in D&D. I kind of like my Forgotten Realms. I like my, my old school sort of stuff. And so I, I like the book. I'm glad, you know, Wild Mountain had a lot of really neat things in it. But I looked at this and I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. But you could only buy the physical version and the digital version together. You couldn't just buy the PDF. So I was like, maybe I won't get it. And then I found out my friend Scott Gray edited it. Or he was, yeah, I think it was the editor or one of the editors of it. I think him and Hannah Rose both edited it. And I'm like, okay. If Scott, if my friend Scott edited, I'm buying it, and I bought it, and wow, I'm really glad I did because beyond beyond the fact that I have I have multiple friends who have worked on this book, as good an RPG book as I've seen, including first party stuff, so like it's as good as anything Wizards of the Coast is putting out, and it's certainly as good or better than almost any third party product that I have seen. It is a it is a crazy crazy good book. You can look at like all the credits of all the people that that went in here, playtesters that went in here. So it is a campaign source book, a big campaign source book. The artwork, of course, the artwork and design are what grabs me right away. The physical design and the, the artwork and physical design just grab me and won't let go, right? They, it's just, I mean, it's just such a strong, it's such a strong book. Whoops. Nice preface by, by Matt Mercer. But look at, like, look at this artwork, right? And so one thing is like the, the, the Critter community who follow all the people that kind of follow the big fans of Critical Role, they have 
a lot of artists. They have access to a lot of artists. And they were able to reach out to a lot of these artists and bring them in and test them. So the art in this book is just off the charts. It's just, it's just incredible. And it is, it is by and large a great big world source book that you can use to run your own adventures in the lands of Tal'Darai, right? The lands of Tal'Darai are Matt Mercer's world that he built. The interesting thing about Tal'Darai is that Matt Mercer, if I understand correctly, is that Matt Mercer built it as kind of a general D&D world, right? So it has all of the, all of the typical draws of a, of a D&D world are in it, right? A lot of the gods are gods that you are familiar with, or, or their, their pantheons are pantheons that you're familiar with. And it's, so, so it works as a very straightforward, it actually ends up fitting the same model that Wizards of the Coast looks for when they're building digital world or building new worlds, which is, can it support everything that's in D&D, right? But it has a lot of what we would consider to be modern sensibilities in D&D. You, your, your, your goblins and your orcs aren't a bunch of cave-dwelling jackasses with little black hearts that are stealing from you all the time or murdering all the people. Goblins and orcs have a place in the world right? And, and there can be good and there can be bad goblins and orcs, right? So same with the drow, right? It, it's handling of the drow. A lot of the modern, a lot of the things we would expect from a modern campaign world are, are in this campaign world. And that's just, you know, I can't get over the art, right? For the main thing. And so, so it covers a lot of the material that you would expect from a campaign source book. It's got, it's got all the kinds of stuff that you would want. How do the planes come into play? What are the pantheons? What are the mainlands? What are the histories? I think Tal'Darai's, you know, I think, I think a big focus on Tal'Darai is that it is a moving world, right? It's got wars going on. It's got empires that are fighting other empires. It reminds me a little bit of the world that you would find in The Witcher, where like there's always like big things going on and your characters may be involved in these, you know, in these big things. And that, that, that's kind of neat. It's like, a, you know, Eberron is sort of the same way. Forgotten Realms, not so much, right? Forgotten Realms, the, the adventures kind of draw, you know, draw the worlds. But like, you know, I guess Greyhawk, I'm, I'm not familiar enough. I guess Greyhawk has sort of empires that are going on when I, when, I played, when I played this. So that, you know, that has the world. But what some of the things that grab my attention and something, you know, so there's a, a, few, a few key points. One is like, well, how would a DM use this if they didn't want to run in Tal'Darai themselves? What, what kind of stuff do they have? And there's a lot of really interesting things that they've got that I think any DM can sort of grab. And there were things that I saw that sort of just delighted me, where I was like, oh, that's, that's really cool. And some of them, I'm trying to find it here in the table of contents. So they have new backgrounds. They have new, a bunch of new subclasses, if you're into subclasses, including like Blood Magic and Rune Child and stuff like that. They have new feats. So a fair bit of character options, new, new takes on all of the different races that exist. The Game Master's Toolbox, I thought, is a really, so this is a, you know, it's not a huge section, 193 to page 212. Is that you know, not quite 20 pages? But like 20 pages of it. Oh, look, they hyperlinked the table of contents. Thank you for that. How to, it gives you a good guide in how to run a campaign, right? Gives you, gives you good thoughts about how to run a campaign, how to go and run adventure. It's got a bunch of new magic items that you can drop in. But one of the things that I really dug, and I think like you don't typically, I guess we find a little bit of this when like Wizards products, like I think Tomb of Annihilation had kind of stuff like this is that it has a bunch of house rules, right? It's sort of like here are Matt Mercer's house rules for, I'm trying to, find it here lots of cool weapons they have more of those like evolving weapons the the weapons that evolve over time vestiges of divergence they call these right and these are these are magic items sort of artifacts that grow in power the more you use them which i think is is pretty cool there's a, a handful of those 
the design is really great, but it's killing my killing the memory on my computer. You know, circlet of barbed visions, cabal's ruin, and a lot of these are items that you know that that have shown up in the show and shown up in the campaign there, which gets to who else this this book might be might be good for. I don't know how much what the overlap is between my items and that there, but we'll get to that in a second. I wish I'd, I sure wish I'd clicked on that. So if you want to pile new magic items, you get to do pile new magic items. If you want a bunch of new monsters, there's a whole bunch of new monsters, and the design of those monsters is really kind of cool and neat. I'll try to run. I'll try to run those. Yeah, the idea of magic items that evolve. Yeah, so here are optional campaign rules, right? And I just I like this idea that it's like, look, it's our book, and we have some house rules that we use when we run our games, and so here are some optional campaign rules, right? And they have them in the book. Some of these are things that that people have been using on their own, right? Some of you are like, oh, I don't need a paragraph for that. I just do that. So the idea of like accelerated rests, like what if in certain circumstances you can take a short rest that doesn't take an hour, but it only takes 10 minutes. I've done this kind of thing before. I've had it where like there's a healing fountain or a holy pool or, or some kind of you know magic fey pool and when you drink it you, you you know you get the equivalent of like a short or maybe even a long rest it's a way to sort of drop rests in it's sort of like in final fantasy they had that little like middle of a dungeon and there'd be like a little glowy star place and you go to this glowy star place and you, like, you'd replenish just like you replenish at a full rest so I think that that's good. This the idea of an arduous rally, like maybe you were able to take five minutes to to restore it, but you don't actually get to restore everything. The alternative resurrection rules, I think, is a really good one. The idea here is that short of a true resurrection, when you're resurrected, there's some kind of major trauma that occurs for your character. You don't just come back and you're fine. And I like that idea. It's also a story focused idea, right? It doesn't change the mechanics of your character, but it does change the story of your character. When you return, you are not the same. Maybe you had to make some pact that brought you back, right? It's not just a matter of, oh, I died, now I cast Resurrection, I come back. It's like, yeah, well, roll 2d6 to see how many years you were stuck in limbo while you were waiting, and then what does that do to you? You know, I think there's there's really kind of, you know, I think there's really kind of neat ways to... Here's a whole list of, like, different harrowing returns, right? You can roll on this on this table. I, I love tables, of course. Um, fading Spirits, I don't really know. I have sort of used a critical role live stream to increase the emotional risk of bringing a beloved friend back from the dead. I think this one had a big part in the first campaign, right? Rapid quaffing. Quaffing is a pretty common house rule used by a lot of people, which says that you can use a bonus action to drink potions rather than an action. It's interesting. I was kind of like, ah, I'm not going to bother with that because I don't really want to dork with the action economy too much. But I've played in a campaign where we are able to do that. And the funny thing is bonus actions are so restricted anyway that being able to drink a potion as a bonus action hasn't really changed much, right? That like it hasn't really changed much of the game. It hasn't made it far easier either. So like, I still probably wouldn't put this house rule in my own game, but I'm playing in a game where I thought, the reason why I didn't originally was like, I thought, oh, there's, you know, it, this is going to totally break the action economy of the game. And it didn't. So I, I just, I love stuff like this. You know, monsters, so allies and adversaries, right? They have a good set of stat blocks, I think. So this one talks about all the different kinds of creatures that exist. And, you know, a great big pile of new new monsters, right? All of which are really pretty cool. Here's a great big one, CR21, right? Great big. Hey, look, force bolts. So neat, neat stuff. They have stat blocks for all of the characters that are in the campaign, too. So if you wanted to just sort of reskin one of those into a, a villain or some kind of NPC, that's a that's a pretty interesting and pretty fun way, uh, pretty fun way to do it. So obviously, to me, the biggest audience for this book is somebody that, and, and there are now many, I'm going to go all the way to the top. There are many people where there's a big overlap between 
people that are playing and running D&D games and are fans of Critical Role. This book is obviously going to be the best value for them. If you are interested in running a game in Tal'Darai, if you are a fan of Critical Role and you run D&D games or you plan to do so, this book is obviously going to be the biggest value to you. If you are a fan of the show, and like when I was a kid, I was like this, right? When I was... There was a time when I was into D&D without playing D&D because like I didn't have anybody to play with. But having a book where I was able to read, like I bought the Forgotten Realms book and I bought the Player's Handbook and it was fun to just read about the game. Is it Tal'Darae? Great, am I mispronouncing it this whole time? That could very well be. The having a book where you can enjoy the world even if you're not playing, is useful. So I think there's a fair bit of this book. Like, there's a, a good deal of crunch in this book, but there's also a lot of fluff, and that fluff is all good. The fluff is all a way to enjoy the Tal'Darae setting and not, and, 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 and even if you're not playing, right? So I think as sort of like a scrapbook of the game, if you're, if you're a big fan of, if you're a big fan of the Critical Role show, it's fun to read this book and kind of follow along. And then the other one is, okay, you're not, you're not a big follower of Critical Role. You don't plan on running a Tal'Darae campaign on your own, but is it useful for yours? And I always look at these things and say, absolutely they are. Because you can take lots of different features and functions. One of the things, oh, I forgot to mention it, but one of the areas where I think it's really useful is in the Gazetteer, every area in the Tal'Darae Gazetteer has these story hooks section, which are small adventure hooks set in any of these areas. And so you could you can kind of draw any one of these sections out and drop it into your own world if you want it. And it has little adventure seeds for each one. I love this design. You know, I really, I'm I'm I, I really, really dig it. This idea that like it makes every part of the book, it makes every part of the gazetteer directly usable in your in your in your table. This is something I'd love to see more source books do. Right. I'd really love to say, sure, here's this whole thing about Stilben, right? The town of Stilben. And here's a, some adventures, right? Here's, you know, three adventures that can take place in the area of Stilben. Really, really practical, right? So I think for DMs who are running in their own world, don't really plan on running Tal'Darae, how would this be useful? You get magic items, you get monsters, you get NPCs, you get a lot of story hooks for specific locations if you wanted to drop those locations in. You get a beautiful book with a lot of really cool artwork. So I think... You know, I mean, you have to decide if it's valuable to you. I don't plan on running a Tal'Darae setting anytime soon. Like, I, I don't know what I'm going to be running, you know, but I'm probably not going to be running a Tal'Darae setting, but I am not disappointed in having this book. And I think I would definitely dive into it to get ideas. I think it would be, it's a really, just a fun book to sit on the couch and read. I think you can clearly recognize that I like this book a lot. And I, and I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really great. As far as where you can get it, I know that... You can buy it directly from Darrington Press. Yeah, you can get it right from the Critical Role shop, right? Or from, from Darrington Press. There it is, right? 50 bucks, which is a pretty good. So first, it uses really like, I, I, I bought it. It's kind of a bummer, and I guess they're going to make the PDF available separately. So if you're like, well, I like it, but I don't really want to have a whole physical book for it, I understand. And hopefully they will have the PDF. Hopefully they will have the PDF available so you can buy that. You can buy that separate. But right now, fifty bucks for both the PDF and physical book is a really good deal. Most of these books these days are sixty are sixty bucks. The physical quality of the book is amazing. It's got a nice ribbon in there. It's it's thread bound. The pages are really thick. You know, it's a it's a really really good book. One thing I recommend. I had read about this on Reddit. And it did happen with, with my book too. Let's see. 
Yeah, is that when they stored the book and shipped the book, weather, the weather matters and humidity matters and it can warp a little bit. I don't know if you can see them, the camera, I can't really see, but it, the book can warp a little bit. So what I recommend you do to avoid that is as soon as you get the book in hand, right after you open it up, get another big stack of books and stack them on top. And that should keep it smooth and have it that as it's getting used to the humidity in your place, it will that it will stay flat. So that's a tip. Does it bother me? Some people are like, it really bothered. And I think they have answered questions from people who are like, hey, look, my book warped and I'm really upset about it. I think they will, they will deal with you. I didn't, I didn't mind too much. I, I unfortunately didn't discover this until after I got it. And then it, it shaped itself around my humidity. It doesn't matter that much to me, right? It's sitting up on a bookshelf anyway. But it is, it is something, if you wanted to have a perfectly pristine copy of this book, the way I would recommend you do it is when you physically buy the book, bring it home, as soon as you open it up, put another big stack of books. Like I had unfortunately stuck it on top of my coffee table with another book underneath it that wasn't the same size. So it like wrapped it and it didn't, it's not, I'm making it sound worse than it was, but it like bent itself around the book that it was sitting on. But the, pa the page quality is super thick. It's nice, glossy pages. The art, like the, 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 the color depth is really, really nice. It's as, it's as good a physical book and better than most. The page thickness is thicker than Wizards of the Coast books you know if you like that really 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 gorgeous book and you know you get the pdf and you get the physical version in the same book so i really like it you know i think it was i think it was an outstanding i think it's an outstanding product and i highly recommend it this past week wizards of the coast put out a new video so todd todd kendrick who used to be for part of the DD beyond team he did all the video production work for DD beyond I actually worked for him for a little bit when i was doing some of the he was he was my lead when i was doing articles for DD beyond a few years ago so i met him then and i think i it's like an interview he interviewed me for some stuff and he now hired on with wizards of the coast and they have been doing a series of videos about morton canaan's monsters monsters of the multiverse and one of which i think you know was how D&D monsters are tougher in Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. And I take a little, like, you know, they're not tougher, right? They're, you know. And so in the video, Jeremy Crawford describes the intent of the new monster design, which is to make sure that they hit their CR. They're more likely to hit their challenge rating when you do different options. The biggest example of this is like, or an example of this, is Orcus now has a ranged attack that does a big pile of damage with range attacks, right? So even if Orcus is not able to hit you with his wand of Orcus, he can hit you with these other force bolt things or these necrotic bolt things and do damage that's roughly, uh, that's roughly equivalent. That doesn't make them tougher. And so, you know, <laughs> when I talk about this with my friends, it's a little bit like, is Jeremy Crawford basically saying like all of us DMs are doing it wrong? Right. Like, is that what he's like? You guys are doing it wrong. He's not really saying that. And I'm thinking saying like the design meant that like only if you, an, an easy one is the Oni. Right. Let's take a look at that. Let's look at the Oni. If you want to see an example of a monster where their challenge rating is buried. The Oni is a good example. So the Oni uh, is a challenge rating seven monster. But you look at it and it does a glaive attack. It does two attacks, either with its cause or glaive, eight damage on a, on a claw or 15 damage, 15 slashing damage with a glaive, right? And you're like, okay, well, that's 30 points. It's seven maybe, right? That's not so bad. But the real thing that they had is the, the, the reason why they're a challenge rating seven instead of like maybe a five is this one spell, Cone of Cold. When they dish out a Cone of Cold, right? That's like 36 damage to two creatures. That kicks its challenge rating up significantly. So when you... If you get the fact that they do Kona Cold on one of the rounds of an Oni 
and then you figure in the other ones. That's what moves its challenge rating up to a seven, which means the reason why it's a CR seven is because of this one ability that's buried kind of under this one line with like five other things in it, four other things in it, right? So his point is that like, and I don't, the Oni is not in Monsters of the Multiverse, but an example is if you didn't cast Kona Cold and it just went straight melee or straight ranged, would it still be the equivalent of a CR7? Well, as you notice, like it doesn't have any other ranged attacks other than spells, right? So you could see that they would probably take the Oni. They would probably give it some spell, some some ranged attacks that would also get its damage up to the point where it's doing roughly CR7 level of damage. That's kind of the 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 approach. And I get that. The two two friends of mine, David Hartledge and Teo Sabadia, wrote articles this past week, both of which I was like reading in, in enthusiastically nodding my heads because both of them are spot on with their article. As a data scientist, I think it's important that I always find data that helps support my preconceived notions to reinforce my opinions about things. That's that's the way I like to approach it. So finding two articles that both agreed with me helped reinforce my bias. I kid, of course. So uh, Teo Sabadia is Alpha Stream. Yeah, Alpha Stream is the name of his blog. The author's name is, is Teo Sabadia. So, but both of them have come to a conclusion that actually I think other, other people have come to this conclusion as well, which is that sure, you might have made monsters hit at their CR or made it a little bit easier for monsters to hit at their CR. That's still too low. That damage is still too low. And DM David has an article, I will link to these all in the show notes to this, where he talks about how battles often run short of the expectations of what we would hope. Uh, a lot of good, a lot of good discussion. And he links back to an article that Teos had written a while back about, about how monsters just aren't hitting hard enough, right? And it's really about damage, right? Like when it comes down to it, when you kind of strip everything away, what you're really talking about is damage. So, so, so DM David wrote about this and then Teos wrote a new article about it where he basically says like, hey, wizards of the coast, why don't you make your internal design concepts public? Because it doesn't really match up. It doesn't always match up with what's in the Dungeon Master's Guide, right? And we don't, you know, they have this formula for how things get built, but then we see it and it's, and it's, it just doesn't quite do the same thing. So his call is, we know that you've got some kind of special way that you are calculating monster challenges. Why don't you show us what that, what that secret sauce is, right? I, I agree with the concept. I think like it doesn't matter because we know what the results are and the results are low, right? The results are the damage is low. We pick on Bale, right? Bale is a good, a good stat block, you know? And, and you know, this is the one, right? Hit points are 189 hit points. Shouldn't they be like 341 to 355? You know, like, you know, it should be, it should be more. So I don't know that it matters if we knew the actual calculations that Wizards of the Coast is using to make monsters and to determine that a, a, a CR 19 archdevil should be, you know, can be one rounded by some paladins and some fighters. It doesn't matter. We know that it's not right, right? We know we can look at it and there are, and so, and, and, and you know, and in my joking about confirmation bias stuff, right? I know there are people who are happy with it, right? And if you're happy, God bless, right? Like. If you're happy with it, great. I'm happy for you. And I wish I was. 
I want to be happy with it. And there are times where I look at it and I'm like, I get grumpy and then I read it. I'm like, okay, that's about right. So like Orcus, for example, I went and looked at the new and old Orcus stat blocks and like, yeah, he kind of hits at the challenge rating he was supposed to hit at. I still don't think it's enough, right? And I was trying to think about like, well, what do I want? Well, of course, what I want is what I put in the Lazy DM's Companion, which is monster dials. So you can tweak the dials to make monsters as, as challenging as you want. You know, if you want an Orcus to be hard, double his damage output. You want a, a great worm from Fizzbands? This is this is kind of my argument about like, well, we know it doesn't work. And we know that like they have this new philosophy and they're talking about it on YouTube, but I already know it doesn't work. And the reason why is because I can look at Fizzbands and I can look at the monsters that are there. I can look at some of the monsters that are in uh, the Wildmount book. And there's a couple things I notice. And one is that like, I look at high challenge monsters and I have run high level games. I did a lot of play testing of high level stuff when I was doing Fantastic Lairs, but I've also been playing high level games for a while. And I know that those great worms are not going to be a big threat for level 17 plus characters, right? They're, they're going to they're gonna knock those great worms out. They're pretty strong and they would be scary as hell if you doubled their damage, right? And now if you double their damage, now they're really scary. And this got to my thought of like, I don't, I get that like some people probably look at a stat block and say, it's fine. Or I've run it, and because I had characters that weren't quote-unquote optimized, i.e. didn't have magic items feats, multi-classing, or players who, who were really super experienced with running their characters, that there was a challenge, right? And we saw this, like I ran a, I ran a 20th level version of a, of a dragon in Fantastic Lairs, and for some groups, they withstood it and it was okay. Other groups got completely TPK'd, which means the variance in power grows the higher level the characters get. In other words, the difference between sort of suboptimal and superoptimal characters is, is relatively thin at lower levels because you don't have a lot of options. If you have feats, you don't even get one till fourth and you almost always take an, an, an ability score increase. If you have a magic item, it's like a plus one magic item, right? And, and if you bring in other subclasses from other books, you really aren't getting a lot of the big benefits of those subclasses till later levels. The minute you hit like fifth level, and then 10th level, the variance between your suboptimal and superoptimal characters, the difference could be like 50%, right? It could be a huge difference between those characters. So how do you build one monster with one set of stats that's gonna be a, a, a quote unquote hard or deadly challenge when there's a 50% difference, not to mention multiple characters, like four characters versus six characters, which now it's maybe 100%, right? It could be really different. And, and a book that handled this really well is 13th Age. And one of the things that 13th Age does so 13th Age, I, I've, I've done a preview of this book before. I did a spotlight on, on 13th Age before, written by Rob Hanso and Jonathan Tweet, both of whom used to work at Wizards of the Coast. Rob Hanso, Hanso worked on 3.5 and 4E. Jonathan Tweet worked heavily on 3.5. So they know what they're talking about when it comes to design. And one of the things that they did with monsters, by the way, if you like... If you are really interested in the fourth edition of D&D, I highly recommend checking out 13th Age because 13th Age to me is a refined version of what of all of the best of what fourth edition had to offer, plus a lot of really cool stuff. And it's one it's in one big book. So here's an example of like the Hezro, right? The Hezro demon in 13th Age. And it's got its typical stuff, right? 210 hit points. It, it has a level. Like you you got to think about the level of it as being twice what the level is here because 13th age only has 10 levels but they kind of encompass the first to 20th level of power so seventh level is like a 14th level monster right 210 hit points high ac physical defenses two attacks 28 damage each right it also uses static damage all the time which i love but then look
nastier specials, right? Abyssal Sergeant, lower level non-mook demons nearby the Hezro deal damage equal to their level when they miss with an attack, right? Stab this now. The Hezro allies gain plus four attack bonus against any creature it's grabbing, right? So they, they've added this little section, just a couple of things called nastier specials. And it's just a way to take a current monster and kick it up. It's, it's, this is a little less than the elite the elite section that the level up 5e monstrous menagerie has, which I talked about last show. That one actually takes a monster, makes it like a mythic monster, which is also a really cool thing. Can I take a Balor and turn a Balor into a really big, powerful boss? That's like a multi-phase boss. And they did a really good job of that in level up 5e. But this is also a little smaller way of saying like, my Hezro, this Hezro is gonna be tougher than other Hezros, right? Let's see if they do it for like a, a Balor. I have a Balor in here somewhere. You know, so here's a Balor, right? And, you know, Great Bay, level 13, like the equivalent of like a 26 level creature, right? 850 hit points, right? Woo! And it has, you know, 100 and, does 160 damage hit. You can see how the numbers in 13th age, they, they scale up, they, they scale crazy high. Nastier special, four blade, critical hits with the Abyssal Blade deal triple damage instead of double damage, right? So on crits, you know, it does, it does, look at that, what, whatever. The Abyssal Blade, 160, I can't even do... That math is too hard for me. Lot, you know, 450 points of damage, which should kill somebody. I just, I like that style a lot. And I, I, I think, no, you know, no one's asking, no one's asking my opinion on this, but I would really love it if in future monster books, whoever happens to be producing monster books, doesn't have to be Wizards of the Coast. It'd be great if Wizards did it too, but I know they're not listening to me. And, you know, it would be really cool to see monsters, high level monsters in particular, like as they reach a higher challenge rating, you know, why not make a variable inside the monster stat block that says, do you want a hard mode? Here's the hard mode. If your characters have a lot of magic items, if you've got five or six players instead of four, if you use feats, if you're bringing in subclass options from other places and they seem like they're hitting harder, turn this dial up or add this feature and now your Balor's aura does three times the amount of damage it normally did. Or now the dragon's breath weapon is twice as twice as powerful and it recharges it more often or it automatically recharges it when it's bloodied or something like that. Lots of fun ways. And of course, as DMs, we can add this, right? So keeping these in your toolbox, keeping the idea, I, I, you know, for me, it's the dials, right? I keep the dials in there. Hit point dial, damage dial, number of attack dial, number of monsters dial, right? And you can, you can tweak these up as you want. It'd be cool if published material started doing more of this, particularly for high-level foes, where you're like, ah, that's what a hard version of this guy looks like. So that's something I'd like to see. But I really like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see both Teos, and their, their articles, both DM David and Teos Abadea's articles about this are getting a fair bit of attention. So, so that is, I'm, I'm glad to see that. And we've talked about that. Let's do some Patreon questions. It is February. Last week, I did a hour and a half long show where I covered all the January questions that we hadn't covered. So now we have a brand new set of patron of patron questions. Fail says my table consists of me, a DM, three people playing physical and one person playing remotely. Currently we have her on discord, all the maps on foundry and we use D and D beyond. So the tech part works fine. My problem is my question is how can I make sure the remote player stays awake and involved in the game? All tips are welcome. She has said herself that she finds it less fun, but doable at this point. So this is a really tough one. I've, I've had this happen. I've, I've had it where a player can't make it to the physical table, but is able to join remotely. And it, it works. I'll, I'll be honest, it's not ideal, right? And it's, it's, it's worse than if everybody's at the table or everybody's remote, 
right? Having a mix of remote players and, and physical players, particularly if there's only one remote player, that's going to be different. There are some ways to do it. One of the things that I have done is like I bought a crazy mount for an iPad and I had them like join on FaceTime and I literally put the iPad on a chair. So we could look over and see the persons that that was playing remote, right? And 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 that mattered because uh, it's real easy to forget they're there, right? You've got physical people at your table. You're paying attention to the physical people. It's hard to remember that there's somebody playing remote. It's better if you have some good way to show their face, and 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 you know, in an ideal circumstance, have the vision of the the, the visual of that face be as big as the heads of the other people that are at the table. You can do that. It's also really easy to talk over remote players. You might talk to one of your play or physical players and say, can you just make sure, like I'm going to be running the game and it's hard for me to remember. Can you just make sure that I'm engaging with our remote player? Can you kind of be responsible for saying, bring to help bring them in? Because it might be a little easier for a player to bring someone else in, like a buddy system, right? It might be easy for a player to bring in somebody than it is uh, to, for you to remember to do it. So any kind of visual helps. The idea that all of the rest of your your infrastructure there, your your VTT and your maps and everything, that you're doing all of that digitally as well, that's that's good too. There is the question of if you've got, I mean, if you really enjoy playing with the other three people physically, because an option is you all go virtual, right? What if everybody went virtual? And that way it's like an even, I, I don't know if that's better or worse. It's certainly better for the people that are there i think right i did an interesting poll this past this past i did two polls and i don't have the exact uh, results in front of me at the moment i'll talk about this next time more people definitely preferred playing oh no i was a poll somebody else had done and more people definitely preferred playing in person than playing remote but then i did a poll to say well how many are doing which and it was about two out of three were playing remote so a lot of people are playing remote D&D. Obviously, COVID is still a big piece of that. But also, it's like it's so much, the, 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 the barriers to play are much easier to break online than they are physical. So, so those are some, I mean, one question is like, you know, it's, it's just going to be harder, right? And there's not a great way to do it. It's, it's definitely, you're going to have one person whose experience is going to be worse than the others. And th there's no great way to do it. Right. There's no great way to do it. I know people who have said, like, I only run we either are all in person or all remote. Right. I will certainly do in person with one person remote as a small. I would do that as a, uh, a stopgap. Like I would do that if if they couldn't make it to one session. Right. I wouldn't do it regularly. I would either I would either have everybody go. I would e either have everybody go remote or I would have. Uh, everybody try to play in person as often as possible. That would be, I think that would be my my ideal. Thanks, Dale. Chris B says, so my current game takes place in a jungle setting and I realize this makes a perfect run an adventure based on Predator. There are even perfect monster in the monster manual, the invisible stalker. My question is, while I can and have prepare encounters with other monsters, most of uh, them will be against the same invisible stalker. How do I do that? Do I parcel out the monster hit points for each encounter? Uh, set a break point where after the party does so much damage, it flees, heals, and comes back. I want to make it a challenge so that in the end, when the party finally kills it, it feels good for the party. But I don't want to make each encounter a full final boss fight. That is a tough problem. By the way, not to, well, what the hell? It's my, the Lazy DM's Companion has, a, has a, a template for this. Oops, that's not the right one. So the Lazy DM's Companion has a, one of the adventure, is it called The Beast? Where is it? I know it's in here somewhere. The Hunger. Is it The Hunger? It might be The Hunger. Yeah, The Hunger, which is based on Jaws, right? 
And the idea, but you could easily do this with a predator option too, that there is, there is a single creature that is out there. I would, this, this is what I would do. It, you, you get a little bit of the like roadhouse slash Walker, Texas Ranger thing, which is you can't just have one bad guy that the hero can go after and take out in one shot. Right. And it can get, it, you can, you, it is certainly, it, you, players, players hate a few things. There's a few different situations that play, in my opinion, generally speaking, players really hate. One of which is having to run away. Players hate running, right? They hate, they, they almost never do it, right? And two is they hate it when the monsters run away too, right? It's, it, it, it has, when a monster gets away, it's a big downward beat. So, so that's tricky. I think having as few times where the predator creature actually faces the characters is probably better. Instead, it can be more interesting to see the results of what the predator creature has done after the fact and that they are, you know, are they hunting it or is it hunting them? And I would have it go after NPCs. I would have to have it go after other things the characters like rather than it engaging in combat with them because, and you might do two, you know, twice you might have it engage with them once when they actually get to see it in battle and two when they actually face it for real. If the characters get separated, it's an opportunity to go beat on one of the characters, you know, with it. But then that also is a big, just keep in mind every time they face it and don't win, it's a great big downward beat. And you want to be prepared to handle that downward beat, right? It's going to be a drag and they're going to be pissed off. So you can get away and they might call foul, right? It's like, because the other one is what if they, what if you throw it up against them the first time and they beat it? Are you okay with that? If you're not okay with that, I wouldn't put it up against them because you're also forcing a situation, right? You're also saying like, I'm setting up a battle and the only way for this battle to go is that it beats on them and then runs away. And that kind of sucks, right? It's better to have a battle where maybe it succeeds. So how would your, how would your thing go? You know, how would your, how would your adventure go if it doesn't get away, if they beat it, right? And which is the most likely outcome in a, in a D&D battle, right? Another way is like, what if it's not just one? What if it's a few, right? What if there's one great big one? You take the invisible stalker and you make a legendary version of it that's got action, you know, all the kind of stuff. But you have smaller invisible stalkers, right? And and maybe they have to face a few of them. And now they're like, oh my God, there's this new weird kind of creature that's out there that we have to face. And the cool thing about invisible stalkers, you can reskin, you can take the goblin stat block and give it the permanently invisible trait. And now you've got miniature invisible stalkers, right? So... I would probably do something like that more than I would say I, I expect to run a series of encounters that all where where it runs away because you're you're presupposing you're presupposing the outcome of battle and I think generally in D and D my my opinion you asked my opinion right you wrote this question in my opinion I wouldn't do that Chris I hope that helped Kale <clears throat> oh, man Kale K says I have always run published campaigns and modified them using the lazy DM steps. Recently, I've started homebrewing for my kids, age 10 and 7. I discovered Nord's, uh, Nord Games' spectacular settlements and dangerous destinations. Very cool. Love Nord. I have also started using Loresmith's world-building supplements for inns, taverns, shops, and cults. Very cool. Love the cults. Uh, I love these materials. I'm able to combine with the Lazy DM method with them to create some really cool stuff. Do you have any advice on world-building versus prepping for a published campaign? I've been keeping things very simple and letting the kids show me what direction uh, they want the world to go in. I mean, beyond what you're talking about, not really. I, you know, I, I talk about spiral campaign development. Hey, guess what? I have a page in that in the Lazy Names Companion, which is available right now at DriveThruRPG. Link in the show notes. 
where is it? Spiral campaign development. I know it's in here. There it is. Spiral campaigns. So, I mean, really everything that I, that I promote, I have in here. I don't really think I have other advice about building a campaign out other than the kind of thing that I talk about here in the spiral campaign. This is only the one page spiral campaign, but I also talk about this in return and you, you can do it for both published campaign settings and you can do it for your own world. You know, build, build the world from the characters outwards. The idea that you're talking to your players and they're helping you build out the world around them. I think that's great. I think that is better to me than the approach of trying to write your own Tal'Darae source book, right? Where it's gods and planes and demons and history and all this stuff. Like let that st sort of organically come in and instead focus on what are the main drives of the characters? What are the, what are the big beats? What's the big thing that's going on here? What's the pitch, right? What's the big thing that's happening? And then, um, and then, and then building from the characters outwards, right? Which is what spiral campaign development is all about. So I don't know if, you know, I don't know if you were looking for something more than that. If you are, sorry, I'm pretty one, you know, I'm, that's as deep as I really get into campaign building, you know, and that, as, as the advice that I've got. Edward B, any tips for getting new players to utilize their class features more often? I feel like, especially the spellcasters, that the bulky text of some of these features just adds another layer of info that is intimidating and overwhelming. How do you get new players to be excited to take the time to understand and learn all of their capabilities? I don't, I mean, part, part of it is like they're, they're, they can be kind of responsible for their own character and players are going to bring whatever they want to bring to the table. So I don't, if they're not using everything, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm being mean by saying, well, that's on them because they're able to, they can read, right? They can, they can, they can dive into it if they want to. And if they don't, that's fine. If, if you find a, a player who is picking like a complex subclass, I mean, some you get new players. And if you have new players, you sit down with them and talk. One trick that I just started adding into my game, uh, I just did it with my Witchlight game this past Wednesday, is when they level, we stop and we say, so what did you get at this next level? What are some of the new features that you that you got? And A, it, 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 it makes them kind of read a little bit more about what they got maybe, but it also lets all of the other players know what that player, what that character now has. And you learn stuff. Like I didn't realize that one of my players was going to pick one of the, he is playing a sorcerer and he picked one of the new sorcerer builds that was in Tasha's. And I didn't realize that. So that, that is cool. Now I'm learning about that, right? I think it's the one where it's like his animated book or his book can bonk people. So I, you know, I, my, my big thing is like, let players play how they want to play, right? You, you don't, you know, and you don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to force a style upon them. I think I talked about this last time too, when we were, or in the last Q and A, we were talking about like trying to get them to role play more among each other. I mean, like you can, you can sort of set the, the stage for that, but like the players are bringing what they want to bring. Right. And, and we should, we should let them bring what they want to bring. You can read them, right. You can go and say like, oh, what are the class features they have and read them and kind of suggest, right. Especially if it's a new player and you say like, you know, Hey, by the way, there's this power that's there. That's really, really good. You might want to pay more attention to that. And just, I mean, in general, just like asking them to read. One thing is like, especially with D&D &D Beyond, it's really easy to like pick an ability and not read it. And you suggest like really go to the class section and read your class page, right? And, and suggesting that can be important because it's like, there's a lot of, not only the details of the mechanics of your class, but the story of why your class is the way it is. You're not going to find that just looking at your character sheet in D&D &D Beyond. It's important to go read what the, the class description and the subclass description says about why your character is doing these things. That can matter a lot. So yeah, I think recommending that is fine. But on the other side, I would also, if, if, if they're not, if they're just regularly not coming, maybe that's, you know, that's kind of how they want to do it. 
Trey says, something I've been hunting through your archives, Tales of the Awning Portal, including upgraded upgraded old modules like Against the Giants and Tomb of Horrors. Uh, their mechanics get a workover, but thematically, they play very differently than 5th edition. That is correct. Opening the wrong door can lead to a very messy encounter that is in no way balanced. I don't know if this actually... Yeah, I, I, I hear you. This is the... I went to the front door of the steading of the hill giant chief, and I opened it up, and I had 16 hill giants attack me. That does happen. My table finished an epic campaign on the edge of tier three and one it continues. So I thought to use giants as a plugin in a tier three campaign, but it's tricky despite warnings uh, that they burst through doors, stop and hold short rests and unsafe places. Generally don't do, don't much mind the need for stealth and speed. I've reworked the scenario, gave them a secret entrance that they locked, gave them intel from inside and even the spiffy sword from the cloud giant. Yet they dither and, and hem and haw about assaulting the place again. My question is what advice would you suggest for players used to 5e conventions to prep them for older style adventures, even when upgrades as this one is, even when upgraded. Yeah, I, I, a big one is talk, talk to them, right? And, and say, this is an old school adventure built with old school sensibilities. So you might open a door and have 16 cloud giants attack you, right? These, these aren't bounced. I, you know, not every, it depends on the 5e adventure, but I really don't think that every adventure is sort of balanced that way either in, in current 5e times. There are definitely adventures that are still built the same way that the old adventures are usually they have like more text about it so if you look at an easy one is if you look at like steading of the hill giant chief in tales of the awning portal and you look at the hill giant lair the hill giant uh lair in uh storm king's thunder they're different and there's like different ways to sort of interact with the one that's in storm king's thunder but it's not like everything was built into these quote-unquote balanced encounters right they just kind of recognize that like you don't want to you don't want to have it where like pretty straightforward reasonable decision results in having 25 hill giants attacking you all at once and so you can you know i think what you've done about like well how would i design it like they did that back when we ran it before like it, it's not a fifth edition thing it's like sometimes just the very very vague descriptions that were in the original adventures the dm had to modify them the dm had to come up with these things that you're coming up with already to make them reasonable at all. But yeah, if your players are like, you know, if they're, if they're basically saying like, I expect the game to do game things and thus I need to rest, I'm just gonna sit right, plop down right here and rest. You can tell them like, you don't think it's a safe place, your characters don't think it's a safe place to rest, right? And you can also stop and maybe during like a, a, a session zero or sort of like between it saying, you know, saying to them, by the way, this, the design of this adventure is different. And, you know, you're, you're going to want to come at it with a different set of sensibilities because it's not going to, you know, it's going to be harder, right? The, the situation is going to be harder than you might be used to. I think that that, that that can work too. So Trey, I hope that I hope that helps. I hope that answers your question. We'll do our last question for the day. Kevin D., have you ever converted normal magic items to first generation legendary or heirloom items? My players are going up against a god and I want to reward them not with replaceable loot. You found a plus two sword and replaced that uh, plus one, but have their weapons, armor, and items transform into legendary or heirloom items. I've created a tier system so that they hit each level uh, level tier. A new ability is unlocked. Your thoughts and experiences. Yes, I love that idea. I think you are probably right up with what I would offer. And we just saw in the Taldorai Reborn that in Taldorai Reborn, they have these sort of air. I forget what they, I already forgot what they call them. They have a kind of interesting name. We've seen these growable items in other books as well. I know that Fizban's Treasury of Dragons has the dragon horde items that get stronger with every major dragon horde that you dip it into. I know that the Wildmount book also has uh, items that grow in power. That is a, it's a common idea. And a lazy way to handle it 
is to take a magic item and you give it an additional plus bonus every time it levels up. So you might be plus one at tier one, plus two at tier two, plus three at tier three. You might even drop it at like third level, eighth level, 13th level, right? So you decide like which level it's going to grow instead of tier because like it might be two power. You get to decide. Decide when you want those things to go up. But a plus two weapon at level five is actually pretty powerful. I might jump that up to a higher tier. And what I like to do is I like to come up with a theme for the weapon. I like to roll on a, a, a table and come up with a theme for the weapon. The, the Lazy DM's workbook has a lot of stuff like this. And then I pick spells that fit that theme. And I might pick three different spells. So you might have like the sword of the wind collar, right? And maybe it's a plus one sword when you first get it that can cast, you know, a, a, a wind blowy prestidigitation or something like that. But then when it gets to its next tier, now it can do gust of wind. And maybe at its third tier, it does cone of cold, right? And so you pick like spells that sort of still fit the theme, but let you, but, but grow, those new spell abilities grow in power. And what I like to do is, Give it a spell-like ability. If it's not, if it's a cantrip, it could do it at will. If it's not a cantrip, it can do it once per day. And then it gains new ones. So it can still do the old ones. It just now does these new ones. And it does each of those once per day as well. Really easy trick. They used to call this like the spell stick. I think I heard Wolfgang Bauer on Dragon Talk talking about like these, this is not a great design for monster for magic items but i think he was really referring to it as not being a great design for magic items that you would publish which i agree with it's a lazy way to publish if you're going to make a magic item go through a little bit of more effort than than just adding spell effects although i think i've done that in books that i've published but i still think it works really well and i think that as a dm as a lazy dm like it, it lets you capitalize on all of those spells that we've got. And if you really want to go above board, like get a book like uh, Deep Magic by Kobold Press and look at the spells in there and pick spells from there because those are spells players have likely not seen. And so now they have new abilities on magic items from, from spells that they've never seen before. And then there's so many spells in there. So you now, you, know, you, can, you can mix and match and create a huge range of growable magic items, right? And then you can decide like what makes it grow. A level, le it growing at the level of the character is an easy way to do it. Maybe you put a quest system so they have to complete certain quests that the sword wants them to do or whatever it is. And as they complete those quests, sort of like the steeping in the dragon's hoard, right? To, to get a, an item. And you can tie it to, you know, you could give it a milestone similar to leveling where like once you complete this thing, once you slay this demon, your weapon is going to grow in power, right? And then the player's like, ooh, I definitely want to do that. So great. I, I, the idea of, of items that grow with you is a really, really good one. I think it's a good lazy one by taking spell effect, you know, increasing the plus bonus on the item and then in, uh, adding new spell effects to it, I think is a really easy way to do it that really matters for players. One thing I found in general is whenever you take a normal magic item and you just add a spell effect even a daily use spell effect even if the spell's not optimal it still it excites players right it makes them really interested in it and it gives them this sort of like horizontal growth in their character where now they've got this one other ability they can do it's really cool even for spells that aren't optimal right spells that are not the most exciting it doesn't all have to be fireball right you can pick other spells that might be suboptimal for a spellcaster but because you get a free use on your on your weapon it works great so I really like that trick. Kevin, I hope that, that answered your question. So thus ends today's D&D talk show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me in the Twitch chat today while we talked, while we talked all about our, 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 the fun world of D&D. 
If you enjoyed the show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy DM's Companion, the PDF now available on DriveThruRPG. Thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. Get out there and play some D&D.